Hare Krishna. Welcome. Welcome to what we have called, uh, Ananda and I always try to think up good titles for when I come, right? Harvest of the Heart. Is, did you come up with that or did I come up with that? I did. Okay. Yeah. Well, we sort of work off each other's brains when we think of these talks. Um, but as you know, we're about three days into Kartik, and it's such a special season. Now, where did I put my papers? Uh, oh, here they are. Yes, very good. Good, good, good. I have all kinds of stuff here. Okay, good. So, Harvest of the Heart is the title. I suppose I came up with this title because... This is naturally the harvest season uh, here and in India. It's the time when trees are full with fruit and bloom. Uh, flowers are blossoming. It's the time to harvest crops. And it's the autumnal season where squash and other vegetables, you know, become big and fresh and ready for for the picking. So for the bhakta, the autumnal season is the perfect time to harvest our, our hearts. Just as farmers harvest the crops, bhaktas are busy harvesting the fields of the heart. You could even say, should they uh, uh, kshetra, the field of the heart. So, so I thought to focus on what are the ways we can appreciate this season and how can we harvest our hearts during this season. So um, with uh, Krishna Kanta's permission, I would like to read what she has written. Uh, or would you care to read it? I read it? Okay. Uh, let me see. Available. So this is um, a, a beautiful thing that uh, Krishna Kanta wrote. She calls it entering Kartik. So we're since we're at the beginning of Kartik, we're all entering it together here. So it's that time of year again in which the sun moves away from the earth. Temperatures drop and darker days start moving in. For many of the world's major religious traditions, these darker autumn and winter months become an impetus to connect with our own inner light sources, our spiritual sparks. This is often represented through the ritualistic lighting of little candles or lamps, as will be done at 6.30 here for our team. Beginning with this month's Vaishnava offerings of ghee lamps for Damodar, to the flickering Diwali lamps, to the lighting of menorahs, we are entering a special time of year marked by people all over the world as a celebration of spiritual light. If we pay close attention, enough attention, we'll notice that our individual experiences of, light, of spiritual light and darkness increase and decrease with a rhythm that mimics the seasonal changes in nature around us. 
The yogis of the past, like Buddha and Patanjali, were incredibly attuned to this and worked within these natural forces to support swift spiritual development. Long dark nights of the soul, to borrow a phrase from St. John of the Cross, have an amazing ability to cause us to reach toward divine light with the most fervor, like Arjuna did at the beginning of the Gita. That certainly was Arjuna's dark night, wasn't it? As such, autumn is meant to prepare us for a spiritual hibernation of sorts, in which we take inventory of all those places and people that we find the most spiritually nourishing in our lives and keep them very close to us. In this context, darkness paradoxically becomes a servant of the light, fueling its brightness. After all, the light of a candle shines the brightest in a dark room. The brightest light in the bhakti tradition is the supreme goddess Radha, Krishna's dearest beloved. We could even say Radha, yes, as in uh, the uh, different names we have uh, to to uh, to epithetically refer to Radha, which I won't go. I'll resist going into that now. Radha and the gopis, her cowherd girlfriends, spend the entire autumn season in the forests of Raja, playing with Krishna in what is called the Ras Lila. During the Ras Lila, the gopis express the sweet sentiments of devotional love that are at the very heart of the bhakti tradition. Today we find these beautiful poetic words in the 10th book of the Bhagavata Purana, the ancient Sanskrit text so dear to practitioners of bhakti. And we're certainly going to go through quite a few of these verses today. This month, devotees of Radha and Krishna meditate on the stories of the Bhagavata Purana that describe Krishna as an adorable toddler, Damodar. In one of the stories, Krishna's mother, Yashoda, binds him up with her love, represented by ropes. Baby Krishna eventually frees himself of these ropes and crawls off. But Krishna never frees himself of the ropes of Radha's love. Beautifully put. Radha's love has more power over Krishna than anything else. During the month of Kartik, we especially celebrate and serve this love. In fact, the special spiritual, special spiritual power or shakti that flows forth to us this month mercifully comes to us from Radha, for she grants us direct access to him. For this reason, Radha is called Urjeshwari, the empress of all power. Her love is so powerful, in fact, that the bhakti tradition describes it as stopping the sun and the moon and their orbits. It is said that during this whole month of Kartik, the moon remained full, its bright light shining upon Radha, Krishna, and the gopis during the Raslila. Kartik begins with today's full moon, at least a few days ago when she wrote this, Sharad Purnima, and lasts until the next Rasayatra Purnima, at the end of the Kartik month. We light the candles every morning and evening this time of year to remind us that our spiritual enthusiasm 
has the potential of never waning, just like the moon of the autumn during the Ras Lila. The external lights are a beautiful reminder of the spiritual sparks we each have burning within us all the time. Finally, Kartik is considered the holiest month of the Bhakti tradition because, despite the darkness all around us, Radha's love is always shining brightly. And this is the month we feel it the most as she shines her special mercy upon us. Thank you, Krishna Kanta. That was beautiful. And what I'd like to do is to um, first present a question, an essential question that I feel we all ultimately ask in our hearts. Have we loved much and have we loved well? The bhakti tradition is all about loving more and more in greater and greater spheres, expanding our hearts ever more, and loving purely, loving well. So we're going to talk about this, and we'll even open up for some discussion, especially if we have a nice small group here, and I'm sure uh, illustrious uh, guests here will have things to say um, as we go along. But first, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to go to some of Prabhupada's words about the Ras Lila. As Krishna Kanta so eloquently said here, stated here, this season is all about the Ras, the Ras Lila, the great eternal dance that Krishna uh, uh, performs with the Vrajagopikas. So here, Prabhupada says here, in a lecture on Srimad Bhagavatam in Delhi in 1973, in November, during Kartik. We are worshiping here Radha Krishna. Originally, there is love. Okay, this is so important, and also for tomorrow's lecture, which Ananda coaxed me into giving. Therefore, we, being part and parcel of God, we are also trying to love a man is trying to love another woman. A woman is trying to love another man. That is natural. This is not artificial, but it is perverted in the material covering. Now, I'd like to translate Prabhupada's uh, words here. When he says perverted, really, I think a, a, a more acceptable word might be distorted. Okay, So I think that's... Uh, perverted has a stronger sense um, in, in English that I don't think is congruent with the rest of the statement. So I would ask all of you to consider understanding that word is distorted. Okay? That is the defect. When we are free from this material covering, then we are qualitatively anandamayobhyasat, the Vedanta Sutra, one one twelve, very famous sutra text. As jolly, so we are qualitatively jolly, Prabhupada says. Okay? So I look around and I see many jolly souls here today. This is wonderful, especially Radhavalva with his bright smile. And uh, as Krishna is dancing always, Krishna, you will never find. You have been, you have seen, so this is a transcription of Prabhupada's lecture, so there's slightly broken English. You have seen the picture of Krishna. He is fighting with the Kaliya serpent. He is dancing. He is not afraid of the serpent. He is dancing, 
as he is dancing with the gopis in the Raslila. Similarly, he is dancing with the snake because he is Anandamayo Byasat. He is Anandamaya, always jolly, always. You will see Krishna, Krishna, just like in Kurukshetra. The fighting is going on. Krishna is jolly. Arjuna is morose because he is a living entity, but he is not morose. He is jolly. That is the nature of God, Anandamayo Byasat. This is the sutra in the Brahma Sutra that God is Anandamaya, meaning uh, Maya is the possessive suffix, means filled, filled with supreme joy. So, in short, jolly. Okay, the Prabhupada's word here, which I'm enjoying very much. Um, so, uh, always jolly, always cheerful, he adds. So, you can become also cheerful when you go back to home, back to Godhead. So I just thought this was a, a very uh, jolly um, sort of um, uh, quotation. I have another one here. Um, Those who have got little brain, they are satisfied with temporary. And those who are advanced yogis, they are not satisfied with temporary happiness. They must be seeking for unlimited happiness. Anantya sukha. Uh, or Ananta Sukha. Um, that can be achieved when you go back to home, back to Krishna. Krishna is eternal. His pastimes are eternal. Just join with Krishna, his rasa dance, his play with coward boys, his dealing with his father and mother in Vrindavan. So our movement is to join Krishna's pastimes. I mean, there is no better time to meditate on this than the month of Kartik. Here's another one. You have to go back to home, go back to Krishna, and there is your real life. Krishna comes, therefore. He displays his rasa dance in Vrindavan to attract these fallen souls, that if you want enjoyment, why not come back to me? Here is the enjoyment. Here is the enjoyment, eternal enjoyment, enjoyment, varieties of enjoyment, Prabhupada says, putting, sort of um, delivering Krishna's words here, as if he's speaking to us. And here Prabhupada says, the intelligence is that we should again go back to, to, to home, go back to Krishna, and dance with him in his rasa dance. Okay, so we may have bodies that have trouble dancing here, or we may be older or, or younger. We may not feel so comfortable. We may feel inhibited dancing. But up there, everything is possible. Being completely freed up into the dance. Oh, Jai. So just as we're talking about joining Krishna in his leelas, now he is uh, making himself completely accessible in most beautiful, beautiful ways. My gosh. I'm always very, very happy to be here because this is the only temple where I actually witnessed all 
three sets of deities installed. And in fact, I installed Gornitai back in 1974 with Damodar. He and I co, you know, sort of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, we were co-priests in the installation back in 1974. So I remember well. So these are... Uh, um, Rupanuga Prabhu was the one to install Radha Mohan and Satsarup uh, Goswami uh, installed uh, Sitaram Lakshman Hanuman. You, you know this history, right, Ananda? Pretty much, right? Uh, yeah, but I would love to get, you know, I'm looking for someone who can do something more of this history. Yeah. Yeah, Palika and I and uh, um, Lakshmi. Uh, Lakshmi Vaughn. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. And Henry's been around for a while too, but he wasn't quite back in the in the very early days. But he was right up the street from the temple. That, that's the funny thing about it, living right up the street. So now here, I want to share with you all before we go into verses on the Ras Lila, I want to just briefly share with you something I'm working on something that I'm harvesting in my theological work. And the question that, um, that I'm trying to answer here is, how would we as bhaktas describe theologically the greatest gift we have to offer the world? What does our theology offer? In a, that some, what does our theology offer that can even nourish the theologies of other traditions? Possibly. Uh, what could we state from our own tradition that is so universally um, impactful and valuable? So, I have tried to harvest our theology. And... I know, of course, Krishna Kanta and, and uh, Laura, you've seen earlier forms of this, but uh, this is a little bit uh, uh, evolved here. So I call it Dwadasha uh, Prastana Tattva Krishna Bhakti Sara. That's a mouthful. And it basically means 12 foundational principles um, explain, or explaining or revealing the essence of Krishna Bhakti. Okay? So I thought... Um, I could try this out on all of you a little bit, okay? And I'm, I'm harvesting. This is still a work in progress. Um, but I thought I would um, present these to you. Now, the, the, um, the struggle in doing something like this is the tension is between getting very tradition-specific Krishna, Bhakti, Radha Krishna, you know, Prema, and so on, which is, of course, Sanskrit and Sanskrit names of God and so on, and, and delivering something that could be absorbable by almost anybody. So there's a, a tension between the two. So I really try to do the latter. I try to present a language that almost anyone could appreciate, and then we can speak more specifically about the bhakti tradition. So, oh yes, you just go right on around there and and have darshan. So here's what it looks like. 
I've divided it into four major categories under which three subsets will be given, okay? Now, you heard what Prabhupada said. We are here to evolve love. And, of course, you heard the question I've asked. Have we loved much and have we loved well? I feel that our tradition challenges us with these two things. Have we loved much and have we loved well? In other words, can we love more and can we love better? Okay? That, I feel, is the basic challenge for this wonderful month of Kartik. That is what Prabhupada came to challenge us all with. And I tried to give you some of those excerpts from lectures. So, four major theses. One, love originates in the divine, it is supreme, and it is boundless. I have three things that will explain this further in a minute. Two, divine love embraces all and it draws everything together. Three, the most powerful force in this physical world is love. Now, you heard Prabhupada also talking about this. Man loves woman, woman loves man. I mean, there's love all around us. I mean, you go out to the cows. There's lots of love with the cows. Cows are very, very loving. Um, there's much animals in the uh, much animal, much love in the animal kingdom. There's love everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But the bhakti tradition challenges us challenges us to love more and to love better. Okay. So, um, and then finally, number four, souls unite eternally with the divine in perfect love. These are the four things that I feel essentially the Krishna Bhakti tradition is trying to tell the world. Now, I'll just elaborate on each one. So, the first one, love originates in the divine, it is supreme, and it is boundless. One, the most natural and powerful force in reality is love. Now, I feel this is fairly intuitive. Who cannot relate to that? If you have a dog, you love the dog, the dog loves you. I mean, that's easy. Um, and there's interspecies love, there's intraspecies love, there's love everywhere. Okay? You can take pictures, but as long as you don't publish it anywhere. Okay? Okay, good. Okay, good. Because my publishers always say, make sure no one takes pictures. But in here, we're a family, so it's fine. Okay. Yeah. In fact, this will be coming out. The final version of this will be coming out in the book being published. Um, uh, the uh, later, the newer version of, I lost it. Oh, it's over there. Okay, good. The newer version of this book. Uh, this is published by Princeton. The new one will be a soft cover published with Oxford. So, um, and this will be a new edition. We've agreed, right? This will be a new edition. This is my editor over there. Um, so, um, anyway, so number one, we've. This is. I, I think it's, this needs little explanation, and we don't have time for a lot because I want to get through a lot of material. Two, the force of love originates within and emanates from the divine. So love has a source. Now we know what that source is. 
That's Radha Krishna. Radha Madan Mohan. That is the source for us. Now, not everyone will see Radha Madan Mohan as the source. We have to respect that. Other traditions find the, sor- the divine source of love in other ways and other visions. That's fine. As Prabhupada himself said, there is bhakti in all true religion. So let's respect that statement. So the force of love originates within and emanates from the divine. We here feel this, experience this from Radha Madan Mohan. That's our special treasure. Okay? But again, this can be related to in many traditions. Three, the ultimate expression of love is a full relation, revelation of a divine relation. Okay? That's a, it's a sort of alliteration there. Full revelation of a divine relation. What I insist is very special about our tradition is we worship not just Krishna, not just Radha, not just Radha Krishna, but the love transacted between them. This is what is so special. So we are a tradition that not only resonates with the Johannine biblical expression, God is love, but we also reverse it. Love is God. And that becomes manifest in, 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 in the embodiment of Mahaprabhu Chaitanya. And that Chaitanya is Radha Krishna Prema combined. That he is the embodiment of the love between, that is transacted between Radha and Krishna. And so we worship the very embodiment of that transaction, of that divine relation. So that's something that's very special. I'm not sure all traditions find that. But I think if they look deeply enough, they'll find it. The major heading two, divine love embraces all and it, and it draws everything together. This divine relation is supremely beautiful, playful, and delightful, as I always like to say. We are a tradition that understands the divine as supremely beautiful, supremely playful, and supremely delightful. Let me translate this a little further in terms of Brindavan. The three principal deities, Radha Madan Mohan, as we have here, Radha Govinda, and, um, and, uh, uh, and Radha Gopinatha, Radha Gopinatha, or, or Radha uh, Gopijanavalaba, uh, as in Radha Vallabha, right? Radha Gopijanavalaba. So we have the three principal deities of Vrindavan represent the process, the practices of bhakti itself. Radha Madan Mohan is the one who uh, um, um, helps us establish our relationship, our bond with the divinity. Madan Mohan. And so he attracts souls to him. So he is supremely beautiful. Okay? So that's the uh, Sambandha Jnana, if we want to get a little technical here. Sambandha, the beginning. Um, the establishment of that, that perfect bond. Sambandha. Um, Radha Govinda. Radha Govinda 
Govinda is the deity, is, is Krishna, who loves playing with the cows. He plays with the cows. He frolics around with the cows and the cowherd boys. So he is very playful. He is supremely playful. And then there is Radhagopinatha. That is to say, the lord of the Vrajagopikas. And this is, he delights the gopis. So he's supremely delightful. So I like to point out that Krishna, our our vision of the divine is supremely beautiful, supremely playful, and supremely delightful. Now this is, I, I don't know of a more optimistic, more extraordinarily pleasurable vision uh, than this. Um, but others, again, to be respectful, other traditions also have beautiful visions of the divine. All beings and existences are embraced by this divine relation. Krishna makes it very clear in Bhagavad Gita that he embraces souls in four ways with his manifestations. The Vishwarupa, the universal form, all-pervading. So it is Krishna embracing us everywhere in this world. It's the way he permeates this world with divine presence. And the very famous I am declarations in the Gita speak to that. Chapter 7, chapters 9, uh, chapters 7, 9, and 10. Okay? So first the Vishwarupa. Then there's the Brahman. Brahman contains absolutely everything. Krishna's Brahman in, in, uh, completely encloses and engulfs everything. And then this is another way that Krishna embraces souls. So Krishna embraces us everywhere, from without, and then also from within, as Purusha or Paramatman. So he's embracing us from within, from without, and everywhere. And then when Krishna is standing right before Arjuna as Purushottama, as Bhagavan, this is the, the part of divinity that still yearns for us. Even though he's embracing us in these three other ways, he wants to be closer to us. And so, as Bhagavan, he is um, yearning for us. And this is number six. Yet there is a divine yearning for the love from humans. So everything is contained in the divine. Everything. And things around us are ultimately controlled by the divine. We are each sitting on these vehicles, which consist of 120 billion cells, I'm told by an MD researcher. And each cell has a million working parts. But what are we doing to really run the machine? I mean, we're not, I mean, Radhavala, but what are you doing to run your machine? Not a whole lot, right? I mean, you're breathing. That's helpful. But, I mean, really. 120 billion cells and a million working parts in each one of the cells, comparatively speaking, we're not doing a whole lot. So much is being done for us. And so when Prabhupada translates that verse in the Gita, we are not the doers, well, it, that, it sounds a little counterintuitive. Uh, my translation is, is slightly different. We do not act alone. In other words, we are supposed to appreciate all that is being done for us, all that for which we can be so grateful. 
that we could just even be sitting here fairly healthy. I mean, as you get older like me, I mean, you're going to go downhill a little bit, but that's okay, you know? You're still functioning, you know? So the point is so much is being done for us. So much is being embraced by Krishna. The only thing we do have control over that not even a God can control is our love. That a divinity cannot control. And that is the Krishna, the Bhagavan Sri Krishna that stands before Arjuna in the Gita saying, look, I've already, I'm, I'm, all, I'm pervading all around you. I'm embracing you from all around you, completely without you, within you, but right here in front of you, I'm not, I'm not feeling the love. Okay? So this is Krishna yearning for greater closeness from our hearts, from us. So, yet there is a divine yearning from Krishna for the love of humans. The most powerful force in this physical world is love. So, then I say, deep within every human is the capacity for pure love. And whether we know it or not, my theory is, well, it's the Bhakti, I think it's well in the Bhakti philosophy that all creatures seek, again, to love more and to love well, to love much and to love well. The idea here is that it is the most powerful striving in humans, for sure. Many philosophers will agree. And I won't go into quoting them. The divine can be concealed from humans by worldly forces, now, this is what Prabhupada was talking about earlier. The divine, you know, the, the, the love coming from the divine, the call coming from the divine, can be obscured by worldly forces, by the trigunya, by the gunas, by distractions, um, by worldly uh, pressures and uh, requirements, um, and so on. Um, so, so many things in this world externally can distract us from the divine and, and can conceal us from the divine. But yet there are so many things that reveal the divine and this is why we're here. Because we can feel the divine revealed very powerfully here with the divine manifestations of, of his deity form and, and, and pure devotees who come here to this temple. So, therefore, uh, number four. Oh, I'm sorry, number nine. We, we didn't get to number nine, right? The human attraction to the divine is awakened by a love call. And this then becomes the spark that's uh, fanned in each one of us. And this is the grace of the bhakta, the devotee. And we all chant some saradavan, aladida loka, and so on, the gurvashtakam. This beautiful metaphor that the spiritual master is likened unto a full rain cloud that has drawn from the ocean of divine grace, taken up all of the water, so much of the water, the ocean of divine grace, and then moves over land to a raging, the raging forest fire of 
worldly existence and pours down its rains to extinguish the fires of affliction. What a beautiful metaphor. That's just my, one of my favorite verses, that first verse of the uh, come. So beautiful. And it's, but it's so, um, you know, metaphors don't always work, you know, at a certain point. This metaphor works all the way through to the end. It really does. It's just the way that, it just scientifically, right, the, the water is drawn up into the rain clouds, it goes over land, and then, of course, there are fires that we know of in, the, in this country that, that uh, are ignited, and, and, the, and, you, and you see pictures in the, in, you know, on the Internet of firemen just standing there watching it because there's nothing they can do about it until the rains come. So these fires are beyond normal human capacity to put out. It takes a guru parampara, such as the one that Prabhupada delivered, to be able to put out those forest fires. So it's a powerful metaphor, really powerful. And so this awakening. So uh, Palika G was in a truck on the way in, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't come to your talk. And I said, well, what's your excuse? You know, I was trying to bully him a little bit, right? He said, I'm going out to Sankirtan, to do Sankirtan, to chant. I said, oh, oh, that is very important. And that is exactly what awakens souls to Krishna through literature, through just meeting a devotee, coming in contact with with someone whose heart is already fanning the spark. There's a contagion from bhaktas. So this is a powerful, number nine is very important. The human attraction to the divine is awakened by a love call. This love call takes many forms. Arjuna's love for Krishna was awakened not by Krishna's flute, which is his main way of awakening souls, but by his teachings. His teachings are also a love call. Yes, his teachings are a love call. Sarva guyatamam guya, buya, sorry. Sarva guyatamam buya, shanume paramang vachaha. Ishtosi me dritamiti. You are so much loved by me, Krishna says to Arjuna. I yearn for your love so much. Just like children yearn for the love of their parents, eventually we find out that we're all children of the divine yearning in the same way. You hear that? Do you hear the yearning? I hear the yearning. Do you hear it? I hear it. Yeah, it's right there. And then finally, the fourth part, souls unite eternally with the divine in perfect love. Now, these, this is bhakti. This is really bhakti, and the three stages of bhakti. And I like to summarize it with three words Three words that are so essential to our uh, philosophy. Prema bhakti rasa. I asked myself one day, and I, I have the great privilege of studying Krishna bhakti philosophy every day. Is that this is my job, is if you can believe it, right? I go to the university, what do I teach? I teach Krishna bhakti. I come back, I study Krishna bhakti. And I, I challenge myself with these different things. So I asked myself, 
what would be the three most essential sort of touch points of our theology? What are the words most found in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, for example? And I knew that... Um, and and, and where, where, do you, where can you find them together in one, one phrase? So I found the word prema all over. Uh, it, I think it appears over a thousand times in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. The word bhakti certainly appears over a thousand times. And the word rasa appears hundreds of times. Then I said, okay, what about couplets? Prema bhakti appears dozens of times, that phrase. Um, Bhakti rasa appears dozens of times, and prema rasa also appears several, dozens of times. And I said, but it's, I said the three words, these are the three most important words. And I looked everywhere, and I finally found it in one verse of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. One verse. And I've written about this in the book that I finished for Tamal Krishna Goswami in the final chapter. So I can't tell you exactly where the verse is. It's Anadi Leela chapter 17, verse something. But Prema Bhakti Rasa only appears once in the whole Chaitanya Charitamrita. Well, needless to say, when I found this, I was pretty much, what, dancing around the house for what, about a week or so? I was so absolutely delighted because I knew it was there. I could feel it, but I couldn't find it. And there it was in all its glory in one little verse. So the reason I explain this to you is because the first, number 10, um, is bhakti, 11 is prema, and 12 is rasa. Okay? And that's why I went through this whole little diatribe about prema bhakti rasa. Okay? Humans engage in practices for attaining closeness with the divine. Why do we chant the maha mantra? This is to become closer to the divine. We will get into that more later. Humans enter into the beautiful, playful, and delightful nature of the divine. So the first is, is a little bit like a vaiti bhakti, learning the disciplines of bhakti, um, uh, disciplining oneself to practice, learning the practices, learning the, 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 the different um, uh, uh, sort of um, um, rituals even and, and, and uh, uh, formulas and so on. So that's vaiti bhakti or vidhi bhakti. The second is raganuga bhakti. This is where one has lived the devotional life and practiced for long periods and have been very devoted, have dedicated themselves, and they feel their devotional lives being filled up with all kinds of wonderful um, blessings. And they, to some degree, enter into the beautiful, playful, and delightful nature of the divine. And that is um, uh, prema. And then finally, humans and the divine become united in the eternal dance of the, of the divine. And that's, of course, what Prabhupada was talking about, the Ras Lila. So that is rasa. And this is where a relationship with the divine is being cultivated. 
So I wanted to share all that with um, you, and that's I, I'm I'm letting you know that that is my harvest. That's my harvesting. It's still being harvested, by the way. I have a whole month ahead, okay? So give me a little time. I'll be working on these more. So before we go further, I would like to do a little bit of chanting to spice up our afternoon. And I think, I think maybe the best thing to do is to, yeah, can you pick this thing? Uh, actually, you know what? With the two handles, you yeah, just put it right on the, See, this is so much better, yeah. And not just, yeah, that's fine. And I'll just put all this stuff here. Oh, I need to open this thing, of course. We can all look forward to uh, some chanting that I've bribed, coerced, requested Laura to do at our six o'clock point. So we will end with much sweet chanting from Laura. And uh, so you have that to look forward to as well. Do a little chanting now, then we'll move more into the Kartik seasonal verses, the verses that really celebrate Kartik. Jaya Radha Madhava Punjabi Hari Jaya Radha Madhava Punjabi Hari Gopi Janabalaba Janabalaba Diraradari Yashodanandana Prajajana Ranjana Yashodanandana Prajajana Ranjana Jamunatira Vanachari Natira Vanachari Jairada Madhava Punjabi Hari Jairada Madhava Punjabi Hari Gopi Janabalaba Kivaradari Janabalaba, <laughs> Rajajana Ranjana Jamunatira Vanachari 
Keep it right here. Yeah. Put the, uh, let's see if this works. Okay. Very carefully. Here we go. Sort of an interesting desk. Okay. Here we go. That was just like adding a period, punctuation. Okay. okay, so in the Bhagavata Purana, we have a famous chapter in the 10th book, Dashamaskanda, 21st uh, chapter, known as the Venu Gita, the song of the flute. And this is, uh, this is especially when Krishna is moved to sound his flute. As we will see, he is most especially desiring to play this flute and to send out the love call from his flute when it comes to calling out the Vrajagopikas to the Vraja forest. We'll see this following this chapter. So just to read through the 20 verses, I think there are 20 verses. Uh, that I've uh, translated here. Again, this is, I translated these uh, some t- uh, 12 years ago. The sage Shuka spoke, thus the forest was filled with clear autumn waters and gentle breezes carrying the sweet scent of lotus flowers. Entering that scene together with cows and cowherd friends, Achutta appeared. Achutta, of course, is a name for Krishna, meaning the infallible one. Among groves of flowering trees and lakes, rivers, and hills, resounding with flocks and birds and swarming maddened bees, Madhupati arrived, accompanied by Balaram and the cowherd boys. While tending the cows, he began to play his flute. These verses are just drenched with autumnal uh, imagery, aren't they? Those young women of Raja were aroused by passion after hearing the song of his flute. Some of them, in his absence, were moved to describe the qualities of Krishna to their intimate friends. As they began to describe him, they remembered him, they remembered the playful activities of Krishna. Their minds again became disturbed by the force of passion and they could no longer speak, O king. I need to say something about that verse. 
The Vrajagopikas were in the kind of ultimate and sort of beyond perfected samadhi by being in this constant cycle of, of Vishnu Smarnam, Krishna Smarnam. This is how it works. When they would speak about Krishna, they would share the leelas with each other and they would, it would be, be building up to such an intensity of affection for Krishna in these leelas that they would just, while they, were, they would do this while they were doing their work, their housework, and, and then when they were so absorbed in the leelas in talking about it, in their katha with one another, they would just freeze and they just couldn't say anything more. So they, they became silent. But then in the distance, they heard Krishna's flute, which then aroused them to then start talking more and speaking more of the leelas and sharing more of the leelas. And then it would build up to such a pitch that they would go silent. And then they would again hear Krishna's flute. This would go on all day. This is just, they were stuck in this, this cycle until the evening. And we'll get there. Adorned with a crown of peacock feathers and blue carnicar flowers ornamenting his ears, he most excellent of dancers, wearing the Vijayanti garland and yellow garments brilliant as gold, filled the holes of his flute with the nectar of his lips while his praises were being sung by coward friends. He then entered the Vrindavan forest, made beautiful by his footprints. Thus hearing, O king, the sound of the flute that captivates the hearts of all beings, the young women of Raja began describing that alluring sound yet again, embracing him with their minds. So here you're seeing that they would hear the leelas and then they would go, they would be stunned and then they would hear Krishna's, uh, the sound of Krishna's flute that captivated their hearts. The beautiful gopis spoke. Oh, friends, for those who have eyes, we know of no greater reward than this. Entering the forest with their companions and herding the cows before them, the two sons of the ruler of Raja, whose faces are adorned by the flutes they play, cast loving glances all around them. It is this vision that is constantly imbibed. Dressed in a splendid array of garments, decorated with tender mango leaves, peacock feathers and bunches of flowers, and wearing garlands of lotuses and lilies, the two of them are exceedingly beautiful, sometimes singing among their coward friends and appearing like the most excellent of dancers on a stage. O gopis, what auspicious acts must have been performed by this flute, for it enjoys the nectar flowing from the lips of Damodar, leaving only a taste for us cowherd girls to whom this nectar truly belongs. The rivers themselves, mothers of the bamboo from, whom, from which the flute is made, feel jubilant with blooming lotuses. And the forefathers of the flute, the bamboo trees, shed tears of joy with their flowing sap. 
So they took the sap of the, of the bamboo as, uh, as if the bamboo was crying. Uh, the gopis always interpreted and misinterpreted, however you want to think of it, the, uh, the, uh, the actions of nature in relation to Krishna. So, for example, when they were searching for Krishna in the forest, they noticed that the trees were heavy with fruit and bloom. It made the branches bend down toward the ground. And the gopis saw this. He said, ah, Krishna must have come through here, for the trees are bowing down with their branches to the Lord. So <laughs> this, is, this is the gopis. They will see everything. They will interpret everything in terms of finding Krishna. Um, O friend, Vrindavan enhances the beauty of the earth with treasure obtained from the lotus feet of the son of Devaki. Upon hearing the flute of Govinda, peacocks dance in rapture. Observing their dancing from hilltops, all other creatures become stunned. Blessed, surely, in spite of their ignorance, are these female deer who have taken birth as animals. Upon hearing the exquisitely dressed son of Nanda sound his divine flute, they offer him worship through affectionate glances along with their black deer mates. Gazing at Krishna, whose pleasing form and behavior are utterly elating for all women or all souls, and hearing the enchanting music emanating from his flute. The hearts of the gods' wives are agitated by passion while they move in heavenly chariots. They become bewildered and their belts loosen as flowers fall from their hair. Cows, too, drink the nectar of the song of the flute, coming forth from, the, from Krishna's mouth into the vessels of their upraised ears. Indeed, calves stand still, their mouths filled with milk flowing from their mother's teats. Watching with tearful eyes, they embrace Govinda within their hearts. By the way, embracing Govinda within their hearts, within one's heart, is just as valuable and just as magnificent as embracing Krishna in front of uh, one. Because as the gopis gathered with Krishna in one section of the chapter of the Raslila, they were all gathered around Krishna. And one gopi closed her eyes. Now, you know, in earlier passages, the gopis complained that they have eyelids interrupting the vision of Krishna for even a nanosecond. So the one... At one moment, they're complaining that why did the creator create eyes, eyelids, that, you know, just like, you know, when you blink, there's that fraction of disruption of what you're looking at. The gopis practically were, were, were angry at the creator for creating eyelids that would do that and interrupt their vision of Krishna. And then you find a gopi closing her eyes. So apparently the eyelids are also useful to the gopis. So closing her eyes, and the reason she did is because she didn't want to share Krishna with all the other gopis for that moment. 
So she closed her eyes and she embraced Krishna from within. So you see, the eyelids are to be cursed and to be treasured at the same time. You see? In this forest, O oh mother, the birds are most certainly great sages. Beholding Krishna playing the melodious song of his flute, they rise to branches of trees covered with beautiful foliage. With unblinking eyes they listen, while all others while all other sounds cease. When rivers hear the music of Mukunda, their flowing currents are broken and their waters swirl out of intense love for him. So they are even interpreting the swirling of the waters as being actions of love for Krishna. The two feet of Murari are made stationary, seized by the embrace of arm-like waves that present offerings of lotus flowers. Seeing how he tends the animals of Raja in the heat of the sun, along with Balaram and the cowherd boys, and how he follows the cows while playing his music, the rain cloud rising high in the sky with love overflowing creates from its own form an umbrella for its friend, showering flower-like raindrops. Sort of like the rain that we got here a little earlier today. Just a light rain. The native women of Pulinda are fully satisfied by contact with the kumkum powder that decorates the breasts of his beloveds, released from the beautiful reddish lotus feet of that greatly praised Lord. Even though they feel tormented by the sight of reddened blade, blades of grass, they also experience relief from the pangs of that passion. That, I'm sorry, the pangs of that vision of passion, when they spread the powder upon their own faces and breasts. Ah, this hill is best among all servants of Hari, O oh, friends. This would be, of course, Govardhan. It delights in the touch of the feet of Krishna and Balaram, offering respects to them both, along with their cows and cowherd friends, by supplying fresh water, pastures of soft grass, sheltering caves and edible roots. The cows are led through the forest by the two boys and their cowherd friends. They are accompanied by sweet sounds of melodious notes flowing from the, enchant the enchanting flute, O oh friends, that cause, that cause moving beings not to move and non-moving non beings like trees to be elated with ripplings of bliss. So non-moving -be non beings start moving and moving beings don't move. So there's a reversal. All the things that move stop moving and they are stunned. And all the things that never moved start moving. The two boys can be recognized by the ropes they carry to bind milking and rambunctious cows. All of this is wonderful. And finally, thus the various divine acts of their beloved Lord as he wandered about Vrindavan were being described by each one of them for the gopis had attained complete absorption in him. So that is the famous Venugita uh, 
that uh, takes place in the autumnal season of Kartik. Now, we, any, by the way, any comments or questions or thoughts um, that anyone might like to share? Just, just any, uh, any uh, thoughts or any questions? Yeah, Henry. Yeah, does does Balaram play a flute also? Yeah, it it you know that it appears that he does. Two boys, let's see here. Um where did you yes, uh enchant they are accompanied by sweet melodious sweet sounds of melodious notes flowing from the enchanting flute. There was a previous one that did seem to allude to yeah. Yeah, Henry's very studious. He picks up these things, I've noticed. Uh, playing his flute. Oh, along with cow, Balaam and the cow boys. And how he follows the cows while playing his flute. Okay, that's just singular, right? I don't see it right off the bat. bat. It, was, it was quite a bit earlier. Let me see here. Krishna Kanta, do you know much about that? Does Balaram actually play a flute? He does. Okay, so all we had to do is ask her. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she's sitting right there. She could have, you know, piped. Played flutes. Oh, okay. So they do. Yeah, everyone gets in on it. Yeah, but the one we hear is Krishna's flute. Yeah, that's that's the flute we hear. So yeah. Okay, very good. Good, Henry. Thank you. I'm learning something. Krishna Kanta knew it all the, the whole while. She's going to sit here and let me look and look and look. Um, that's right. And Ananda, that's great. That's right. I remember seeing depictions where they, they have their flutes with them. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Good. Any other comments or, or questions? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, in a way, I never feel like I can take any credit for the translations because I'm, I'm, I try so much to reincarnate the Sanskrit. So I feel like I'm basically plagiarizing the Sanskrit. I guess that's good translation. Because I, I, whenever I have seen the Um, you know what I think you're speaking about is the prose translation. And prose can take things from the front of the verse, put it at the, at the end of the line, and so on. And that's a prose translation, which would be more informational. I spent you know, hours and hours sometimes on a single verse trying to reincarnate the poetic rhythms and beauty of the verse. So that's what I've tried to do. Yeah, If you're interested in that, it's... In the book somewhere, wherever. Anyway, I can show you the book later. Thank you, though. Yes, I suffer long and hard on these translations. The first verse of... See, do I... Yes, I thought we might all recite the first verse of the Ras Lila. It is so famous. It is so important. It is so beautiful. Bhagavan Apitaratri Sharadot Pulamalika Viksharantu Manas Chakre Yoga Mayam Upashritaha. So, 
Why don't we try that? So I will say and you say, okay? Bhagavan, Api, Ta, Ratri, Sharadotpulla, Mallika, Vikshya, Rantum, Manaschakre, Yoga, Mayam, Upashritaha, Bhagavan Apita Ratri, Sharadotpulla Mallika, Sharadotpulla Mallika, Okay. Viksharantu Manaschakre. Yoga Mayam Upashritaha. Isn't it beautiful? It's so simple. But I will confess, since you're interested in translation, I had to go through 49 other renditions of this verse before I came up with this one. The, the one I'm going to show you right here. 49. Even the beloved Lord, seeing those nights in autumn filled with blooming jasmine flowers, turned his mind toward love's delights, fully taking refuge in Yogamaya's elusive powers. So, this, and in my book, I spend about 20 pages just explaining the word even. Upi. The very fact that the Lord, seeing these particular autumn nights filled with these blooming jasmine flowers, indicates a very, very exceptional event. First of all, jasmine does not bloom in the autumn. It blooms, as many of you know, in the spring and summer and here it is blooming in the autumn and is blooming at night well who's not supposed to bloom in autumn and bloom at night the Rajagopikas so there is a very rich metaphor here between the jasmine flowers who are exceptional in their season for blooming and in their blooming at night the Rajagopikas are also about to bloom out from their homes at night when they're not supposed to. So this is also quite exceptional. <coughs> Excuse me. And then even the beloved Lord turned his mind toward love's delights, fully taking refuge in yoga maya's elusive powers. I will tell you, out of the 335 chapters of the Bhagavata Purana, which I have scoured thoroughly, there is no place where Krishna takes full refuge in yoga maya. No place. This is exceptional. Anyway, I've written a whole book on this verse practically. Okay, So I'm not going to read you the 448 pages of this book. I'm sure you're not disappointed. I'm sure you're relieved. Okay, So, but... I just wanted to clue you in onto some of these features, okay? It's an exquisite verse. Bhagavan apitaratri sharadot pulla malika viksharantum manas chakre yogamayam upashritaha. 
It is just, it's simple Puranic Sanskrit, anishtub, shloka, but it is exquisite, truly exquisite in its theological and lila vision. It's just exquisite. But listen to the next verse. If you think that was, anyway, I'm not going to, I have these committed to memory, but, um, but they're beautiful, just beautiful in the Sanskrit. Then the moon, king among stars, arose, spreading soothing reddish rays over the face of the eastern horizon, dispelling the sorrow from those who looked on as a lover caresses his beloved's blushed face, consoling her after long separation. Do you see the metaphor here? A lover comes home finally, touches his beloved's face, and she blushes with red, just as the moon spreads a reddish rays over the eastern horizon. It doesn't get better than this. I had a student, I had a student, um, I was uh, uh, speaking of these in an advanced class, graduate class, uh, one year, and a uh, student came up to me afterwards and said, I, I'm a student of English, and I am focusing on Shakespeare, and I have to tell you, I have never seen anything so beautiful in my whole life. And this is, this is an English major studying Shakespeare. My Sanskrit teacher up at Harvard, who knew some 14 languages, studied poetry, he was a poetics expert, Daniel H.H. H. Ingalls, said of this passage, in print, something that scholars just don't ever say, he said the 10th canto, especially this passage, is the most enchanting poem ever written. And, and he's not a bhakta particular. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he, was a, he was a philologist. He was a Sanskritist. And he said of, this, of these passages, the most enchanting poem ever written. He also, we used to go to his home on Memorial Drive, on the, along the, uh, I almost said James River, Charles River uh, in Cambridge. He used to have special little sessions for advanced yoga students, you know, Sanskrit students. And we used to go over to his apartment and um, he would be reading um, passages from Sanskrit texts. Anyway, he decided to read from these Bhagavata passages and even then he said he had to prepare, couldn't read it fluently because they're so rich in, in, in metaphorical complexity and, and nuance. He said he couldn't do it justice by just reading it through. So I saw him looking at his crib notes, which he never did when he read Sanskrit, because he was fluent in Sanskrit. But for this, he had to... So now you can pity me when I, have to, when I tell you I have to translate something 49 times before I came up with the final translation. And then, of course, I get scared because then it goes into print and I can never change it again. So that's it's worse than... So anyway, what a beautiful... And it doesn't stop there. Listen to this. Seeing lotus flowers bloom in the perfect circle of the moon, beaming like the face of Rama, the goddess, reddish as fresh kumkuma, Seeing the forest colored by the moon's gentle rays, he began to make sweet music, melting the hearts of fair maidens with beautiful eyes. 
The Sanskrit is exquisite. These first four verses are just exquisite. In all of world literature, you will these stand out. Listen to this next one. Upon hearing that sweet music, their passion for him swelling, the young women of Raja whose minds were captured by Krishna, unaware of one another, ran off toward the place where their beloved was waiting, with their earrings swinging wildly. Javalola Kundala is this. <laughs> Javalola Kundala. It's almost onomatopoeic. Javalola Kundala. Then it gets kind of exciting here. Some left abruptly while milking the cows. Due to excitement, the milking had ceased. Some left the milk as it boiled over. Others departed, leaving cakes on the hearth. Some suddenly stopped dressing themselves. Others no longer fed children their milk. Some left their husbands who had not been served. Whoa, that's pretty bad. Um, Others, while eating, abandoned their meals. Some were massaging their bodies with oils or cleansing themselves others applying ointment to their eyes. Their garments and ornaments in utter disarray, they hastened to be with Krishna. They frankly could no longer even care how they looked. They just dropped everything, whatever it was. Their husbands, fathers, brothers, all relatives endeavored to detain them. Since their hearts had been stolen by Govinda, they they who were entranced did not turn back. Some gopis, unable to leave, and we talked about going inside, right? Embracing Krishna from within. Some gopis, unable to leave, had gone inside their homes with eyes closed, fully absorbed in love. They meditated upon Krishna. So they couldn't go out to see Krishna. They went within to see Krishna. The intense burning of unbearable, passion, unbearable separation from their dearest beloved disrupted all inauspiciousness. Due to the joy of embracing Achuta attained through meditation, even their worldly happiness was lost. In other words, the incomparable joy they experienced being so intimately connected with Krishna, everything else pales by comparison. Certainly he is the supreme soul, though he knew him intimately as their lover. They relinquished their bodies composed of material elements and any worldly bondage was instantly destroyed. I'm going to skip here in the interest of time. Okay, so the Rajagopikas come out to the forest. And Krishna speaks here. Welcome, most fortunate ladies. What can I do to please you? Is all going well in Braja? Please explain the purpose of your arrival, as if he didn't know. Okay, he's being very clever here, very coy. But Krishna knew exactly why they arrived. They couldn't resist the love call of the sounds coming from his flute. Night, night had, now, it appears that I've repeated the verse here, and I have, but one has a negative translation and one has a simultaneous positive translation. And this is how clever Krishna is. And this is how playful he is, as well as delightful. Night has a frightening appearance, he says to them. 
inhabiting this place are fearsome creatures. After all, they're in the forest, right? Please return to Vraja. Women should not remain here, O ones with beautiful waists. A little flirtatious. But then the same verse can be read, Night is without a frightening appearance. Inhabiting this place are creatures that are not fearsome. Please do not return to Vraja. Women should remain here, O ones with beautiful waists. Now, in, you can't do this in English. I mean, you could do it with expression, like, you know, yeah, that's really great. You see, you can, you can do it with tone and with expression, but this is done linguistically. And Sanskrit, you can do this with Sanskrit, and I'm not going to give you Sanskrit lessons this afternoon, okay? It's really more than I, I was borrowed. I wasn't hired for that, right, Ananda? Good. Okay, she's the boss. Okay, so then, if that weren't enough, Krishna still continues his playful language. Your mother's, father's, sons, brothers, and husbands cannot find you. They are searching for you. Do not create anxiety for your families. The double entendre. Your mother's, father's, sons, brothers, and husbands cannot find you. In other words, that's good. Even though they are searching for you, you must not be anxious for your families. Everything is cool. Don't worry. He's trying to, you know, settle them. So you see, the autumn season, we've been talking earlier about how serious it is for harvesting our hearts and, and how bhakti challenges us to love much and to love well. But it's also a playful season. It's also playful. And Govardhan Leela certainly celebrates the playfulness of, of the season. And you will have a big celebration here, right, Ananda? Of, of, of Govardhan Lila, right? Good. So it's very, he's very playful. And then he recites some beautiful poetry, he says, which, with which he's trying to allure the gopis even further. You have seen the forest filled with flowers, glowing with the rays of the full moon, made beautiful by leaves of trees, playfully shimmering from the gentle breeze off the river Yamuna. How can you resist this kind of poetry? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, right? So the gopis are utterly entranced, but they're confused. Like, leave, stay, leave, stay. And then he does it again, I'm sorry to say. Please go to the village without delay. Oh, chaste ladies, attend your husbands. Your calves and relatives, uh, your calves and children are crying for you. You must go feed and nurse them. Okay? Double entendre. Please do not go back right away to attend your husbands, oh, chaste ladies. Your calves and children are crying for others, not for you. You need not feed and nurse them. Krishna is very playful. And I'm sure all of you have felt Krishna playful in your lives at different times. I remember the last time I gave a lecture here, I talked about how Krishna was very playful before I came here in a conference with Swami Nirvisheshananda. <laughs> Krishna is very, very playful. He, the more one absorbs one's life in a life of bhakti, the more one can see playfulness all around. I, I, I mean, 
it's true. This is a world with a lot of suffering. It is true. And one should never not acknowledge that. And a bhakta is forever compassionate and, uh, and wanting to serve the hearts that are in pain and that are suffering in this world. But at the same time, there's so much of Krishna's nature that comes through this world. And there is a playfulness. And, uh, and even, even animals are playfulness. The cows here are playful. Laura knows these cows very well. She visits them every time she comes here. Are they playful or not? Confirmed. They are playful. Okay. So, again, playfulness is part of human nature. And, and I mean, it, it gets spelled out in worldly ways, too. I mean, the playing uh, sports, uh, going and seeing the, uh, uh, what are they uh, called the Red Sox? Or what are they here? Uh, Redskins. Oh, sorry. Redskins, not the Sox, the Skins. Okay. And uh, they're baseball, right? No, no, football. Football, of course. They're football. Sorry. Okay. I am not current on my sports. Well, Chris is playing with my mind right now. Yeah. Uh, I, next time, I promise, I'll come up to, I'll, I'll be current with my sports. Yeah. In any case, then Krishna says to the gopis, or perhaps your hearts are bound out of deep affection for me. Since all living beings are dear to me, you also must have come to be near to me. Now, this is what bhakti is about, is coming closer to Krishna, to be near him. So we come to the mandir, to be nearer to Krishna, to be nearer to the devotees who are nearer to Krishna. That is bhakti sangha, that is that is. The, the, the sadhu sangha that is so important in Krishna Bhakti. Then he does it again. For every woman, the highest dharma is to serve her husband without falsity. He just said that every living being is, is you know, close to, closer to him than anyone else. Now he's saying, for every woman, the highest dharma is to serve her husband without falsity, be agreeable toward his family members, and nourish the children. Very traditional values, right? Okay, for this, now, but then he says, for the, dharma, for the dharma of all other women is to serve false husbands. Okay? So, so for the dharma of all other women is to serve false husbands, be agreeable toward their family members, and nourish the children. In other words, these aren't your real husbands. I'm your real husband. I am your beloved, Krishna is saying. So he's working between the world of dharma and parodharma. This, this sort of dialectical movement between dharma and parodharma. I have a whole section in my book on this. So, Okay, so we're going to skip ahead here. We're going to move ahead because I want to save some time Well, at a certain point, the gopis respond. And I'm going to give you a little taste of their response. Oh, all-pervading one, you should not speak so cruelly to us. Probably somewhere in there, tacitly, is 
don't keep jerking us around, you know, with this double entendre, you know. We have fully abandoned all objects of desire for the soles of your feet. Oh, 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 unattainable one. They're feeling like he's pretty unattainable at this point. Do not reject us. Accept us as your devotees, just as you, the Lord, the original person, accept those who desire liberation. So, you know, in other words, those who desire liberation don't even get this close to Krishna. But they're having to resort to reminding him, hey, you accept them, you should definitely accept us. If you accept them, you should accept us. I mean, after all, all they do is sit and meditate. We've run out of our homes. You know, they have it easy. We've, we've sacrificed everything, you know. So anyway, there's so many ways you can elaborate on this. And by the way, the commentators do endlessly. Oh, dear one, as you know who knows Dharma have stated, the proper duty for women is to be loyal to husbands, children, and close friends. Let this Dharma of ours be for you, O Lord, since you are the true object of such teachings. Boy, see how they're, apparently the gopis are extremely, they're, they're, they're matching his, you know, his comments initially, right? Truly, you are the dearest beloved of all living beings, the most intimate relation, for you are the supreme soul. In other words, we don't belong anywhere else. We belong right here with you. So don't tell us to go back to Brudge. O soul, the spiritually advanced certainly feel attraction to you as their eternal beloved. With these husbands, children, and others causing much trouble, what is to be done? O Supreme Lord, please be merciful unto us. O one with eyes like lotus flowers, do not destroy our hopes that we have held for so long. Now, no one here should take from this that you're supposed to abandon you know, your, your families and move into the temple. Okay, that's not what's being said here. Actually, the message ultimately here, if understood in, in a comprehensive fashion, is that you maintain dharma as well as paro-dharma at the same time. Um, I have, um, uh, in my teaching, I always ask my students, I have some weird, I explain my, okay, how did I do this? I, I give my students what's called slogs, clogs, Slogs are like in-class logs, okay? Just like blog, class log. So they're called slogs. I think it's ingenious, but no one else does. They think it sounds awful. But no one else does, and I don't really care. Anyway, and then clog is homework log, okay? So those are slogs and clogs. So then I said, but then I tell them, tell me what you think then are the mysterious frogs. And... What I eventually explained to them is that frogs live both in water. They're amphibious. They live in water and they live on land. I said, that's the bhakta. We live in both worlds at once. We live in this world. We live in the divine world. It's not that we, we give up one world you know, and, and, and say it's useless and horrible and, 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 and there's nothing good here, only the divine world. Some religious traditions say this, actually. We don't say that. There's so much to treasure and value here. But certainly, that is the case because of the divine world. So we live in both worlds. So bhaktas are basically, well, I don't want to say bhaktas are frogs because that doesn't sound good. And frogs are known for croaking very loudly 
to where snakes can find them and then eat them and devour them. So frogs are also known in a negative instance that way. So, but anyway, I do make my students think about having a foot in both worlds, which is what the bhakta has. So we're amphibious. As bhaktas, we have our foot in one world and we have our foot in another world. And there are no snakes that are going to come along and eat us up. Agasura was taken care of by Krishna. While in our homes, our minds were easily stolen by you, so also were our hands engaged in housework. Our feet will not move even one step from the soles of your feet. How shall we return to Vraja? What would we do there? Oh, dear one, with the flood of nectar coming from your lips, extinguish the fire burning within our hearts, born of your sweet music, your glances and laughter. For if you don't, we shall place our bodies in the fire, born of separation from you then, O oh friend, by means of meditation, we shall go to the abode of your feet. So now they're threatening him. O lotus-eyed one, so dear to sages residing in the forest. In other words, everyone else is dear to them, but them. You know, they're feeling like, if you could do this for everyone else, you should be able to do this for us. From the moment we touch the soles of your feet, a moment rarely granted even to the goddess of Ramah, from that time on we have been unable to stand directly in the presence of any other man. Indeed, we have become filled with the joy, with joy because of you. Let's see here. Okay, now, um, okay, we're going to go all the way to the fifth chapter. So there are five chapters in the Raslila. I want to make sure. Oh, well, okay, this is a nice place that shows a break. This is a little miniature uh, that I found in India that is blown up about 20 times the size. It's... Um, you'll see, oh, it was, in the, it was in the front, the, the beginning page of this uh, uh, talk. Anyway, the whole thing is about this big, and this is only half of the painting. So you can imagine. The, the half that you're seeing now is about like this. The detail is exquisite, as Henry well knows about miniature painting uh, with his collection of B.G. Sharma's. I just want to read to you now the first eight verses of the final chapter when the Ras Lila um, uh, is manifest and then wind up for any talk, discussion and questions and then at 6 o'clock in about 15 minutes we will be serenaded virtually serenaded by Laura's wonderful kirtan the fifth and final chapter opens up so, oh no 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 I'm sorry this is uh, okay uh, this is where the gopis, no, this is the fourth chapter, I'm sorry, where the gopis before, after they find Krishna, they discover Krishna, the gopis ask Krishna about the nature of love. And so this speaks to our original question. How do we love well and how do we love much? Some love only those who love in return. Some, however, love those who may not return their love. Some do not love in either of these ways. Please explain this to us. Friends who love each other yet ultimately strive for their own 
self-interest. Do not find endearment nor fulfill dharma. Indeed, such friends have no purpose other than self-interest. Those who love others who may not offer love in return are either parents, and those of you who are parents here know exactly what that means, right? You love children, and do they always love you back? Well, you know, it's hit or miss. You know what I mean, right? Well, wait, wait, does he love you? Do you love your parents back? Good. Hey, you're a good kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll take him home with us, huh? We'll take him home with us. That's right, good. Okay, they are either parents or persons of compassion. Oh, ladies with beautiful waists, they are persons of dharma who are without fault and are truly endearing. So it's not that all parents are without self-interest, but, um, but parents who really learn, and there's so much to learn from being parents, so much to learn from children, that you can learn something about this non-self-interested love or selfless love that is there in bhakti. Very valuable teachings. This is the, the mes- best-kept secret that actually family life has unlimited lessons for learning about bhakti. Okay, you heard it here. You won't hear it much elsewhere. But that, but that is uh, in my greatest estimation. Some do not love even those who offer them love, let alone those who, not, who are not loving toward them. Such persons may be satisfied by the self and fulfilled in all desires, or they may be ungrateful, even hateful toward the venerable. So these are people who just are disgruntled by the world, uh, who, want to, uh, who uh, want to practice a renunciation and get away from the question of any love in this world. Um, that's not really helpful in bhakti. And as I will speak about tomorrow in the Sunday Feast Lecture, um, what's it called? Anatomy of Bhakti? I think I've expanded it to Anatomy of Pure Love in Bhakti. Okay, if that's all right with the boss. Okay, good. So, Anatomy of Pure Love in Bhakti. We will talk about the nature of love in this world and how it relates to pure love in Bhakti. That we will talk about tomorrow. So, coming attractions. Isn't that what they say? Coming attractions? Or movies or something like that? Okay, so now, O oh friends, in order to strengthen their love, I may not return even the love of those who love me, Krishna says. Like a poor man who obtains a treasure, then loses it. Such a person knows nothing else, filled with no other thought than regaining that treasure. So we have the treasure of Krishna within our hearts, but somehow we've lost it. And it's right there. We're sitting on the greatest treasure in the universe. And we've lost it. Now we have to find it. We can help each other find it in the sangha that we find in bhakti environments like this. So, now, the tenth book. And I'm going to wind up soon. Thus, having heard the enchanting words of their beloved Lord, the gopis forgot the the agony caused by separation from him. Their desires were fulfilled simply by touching his limbs. Then Govinda commenced the play of the rasa dance, 
with his devoted ones. Those jewel-like maidens, joined together by love, linked their arms with one another. Now, rasa, please don't confuse the word rasa with rasa. Rasa is more the generic term for the intimate relationships with with the, the divine. And as you know, there's Shanta, Dasya, Sakya, Vatsalya, and and Shringara, Rasas. Okay, um, but Rasa is has two meanings. It refers to a harvest dance, an actual harvest dance that is practiced during the harvest. But it but Rasa, when its vowel is strengthened, right, called Vritti, right? And when you strengthen the vowel, it, it uh turns into ah, and it also strengthens the meaning. So it, rasa means the sum total of all rasa. So you strengthen the vowel, you strengthen the meaning. Okay? So rasa, yes, it refers to a harvest dance, which of course is appropriate for Kartik, but it also means all the rasas come together in the rasa dance. So l- listen to this next verse, which, by the way, I've retranslated and is different than the book, but will come out in the Oxford translation this way. The festival of the rasa dance began blossoming forth. The word for festival, utsava, utsava, means festival, but literally it means Blossoming forth, blossoming upward, utsava, ut, up, utsava, blossoming forth with with the perfect turning of a circular formation of gopis who were beautifully adorned. Rasotsava sampravritta gopi mandala manditaha. Exquisite poetry, again, exquisite. The Supreme Lord of Yoga, Krishna, then entered among them between each pair. Each thought she alone was at his side as he placed his arms around the necks of those young women. Then hundreds of celestial chariots crowded the sky, carrying the captivated denizens of the heavens along with their wives, their souls anxious to behold this scene. Kettle drums resounded while showers of blossoms fell to the ground. Boy, they were excited. They had their instruments and everything. They were playing. The leading Gandharvas, the best singers in the universe, and their wives sang about this, about his perfect glory. The bracelets, ankle bells, and bells decorating the waist of those young women, each with their own beloved, created a tumultuous sound in the circle of the rasa dance. So, The denizens of the heavens were playing drums and musical instruments and then just the bells from the belts of the gopis added to the percussion, you know, percussive rhythm. And this became an orchestral kind of event. This is an important verse. There glowing brilliantly among them was the beloved Lord, son of Devaki. In a setting of golden ornaments, he appeared like a magnificent emerald. What color is an emerald? Do you know what color? It's green, right? What color is Krishna? Then how is this possible? He appeared like a magnificent emerald. How does Krishna appear to be green? 
when we know he is blue. What we learn is that when Krishna duplicates himself multiple times to be between each pair of gopis, he is in such close proximity to the golden-hued, golden-complected gopis that when you take the primary colors of blue and yellow or gold, you get the color correct. He appears to be green. Notice that the Vrajagopikas did not appear to be green or any other color. It was Krishna who was transformed by his devotee. Now, this is the highest level of Kartik celebration. If you can turn green, if you can turn golden and have Krishna turn green, then you've made it. Okay? If you come here and perceive Madan Mohan being greenish, please let me know. I would like to meet you. I would like to know you. I surely would. And then the final, well, not the final verse, but the climactic verse, which is in the longest metered verse, a THD meter, and it's the only one of this length, 17 syllables per quarter verse, with their feet stepping to the dance with gestures of their hands, loving smiles and sporting eyebrows, with waists bending and the rhythmic movements of garments covering their breasts, with earrings swinging on their cheeks, the spiritual wives of Krishna, with more, see, they're Krishna's wives, not anyone else's. The spiritual wives of Krishna, they're with moistened faces and braids and belts tied tightly, saying his praises. They appeared like lustrous flashes of radiant lightning engulfed by a ring of dark clouds. After that verse, there's really not a whole lot more to say except uh, maybe that how do you enter that with that can you see it alright the Mahamantra in Sanskrit which has a circuitous pattern and rhythm of words of divine names that is how we enter the Ras Mandala Prabhupada said Let's go back to the beginning of our talk. Prabhupada said, we are supposed to join the dance. How do we join the dance? We dance with the names. That's our process. That's the dance. Hare, oh hara. O oh, great goddess, O oh, power of divine love that inspires us. Now, there are many ways to understand Hare, originally Hara. Then Krishna, O oh, Krishna, O oh, divinity, O oh, supreme beauty that attracts our hearts. Rama, O oh, Rama, O oh, divinity, O oh, supreme pleasure that delights in our love. So, this is our task in Kartik. It's to join the dance. So, uh, we should help each other join the dance.
And uh, let me see, do I have anything after that? Oh, so I'm ending with what we began with. Have we loved much? And have we loved well? This is the challenge before all of us. And this is the thing that we have to answer to at the end of our lives. There's nothing else that we care about at that point. That's what we take with us, is however much we have loved and however well we have loved, that's what we take. Everything else is gone. So that's our bhakti process. And that's the beauty of Kartik. We get to focus on this more intensively and just uh, with so much beautiful imagery. So it is the month during which, of course, the Govardhan Leela occurs. It's also the month during which we lost our dear Prabhupada. So I remember that uh, day. And, um, but as Krishna Kanta has shown us in her piece, that light shows up so much better in darkness. So his teachings have illumined even more greatly, even, even during the departure of such a great master. So we can be so grateful to him that he has given all of us this. And he sat right there. And uh, it would do us well to do extra study of his teachings during this season. And that's, that's the miniature you saw before of Radha Krishna. I have this right by my desk. So I'm constantly meditating on this image every day, all day. So I thank you very much for coming today. And we will now... Any quick comments or questions? Just before I, before I don't want to, uh, I want to make sure. Ananda, yeah. Yes. About about the circuitous nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you've ever noticed when you're chanting, one one, you know. Um, recitation of the mantra just merges right into the next mantra. In fact, you don't know whether saying Krishna, Krishna, or Rama, Rama comes first or second. It just goes around and around. And it has a dance rhythm. First of all, there is no mantra in, in, in the huge number of mantras that are available to, for sacred contemplation. There is no mantra of this kind that, first of all, is repetitive within itself, one. Two, that only has divine names. Three, that are all in the vocative case. And not, it's not a syntactical state like om namo bhagavate vasudevaya. That's a syntactical st- sentence in Sanskrit, um, uh, inter- in- introduced by the omkar, pranava omkar. There's no need for the omkar when, def- when chanting the divine names of Hra, Krishna, and Rama because omkar brings you to Krishna. But once you're with Krishna, omkar is not necessary. It's the whole point. 
<laughs> That's, that, but every other mantra does, does that. Every other mantra brings you to the point of, well, being closer to Krishna. So the Maha Mantra is extraordinary and it stands out among all other mantras. There is no other mantra like the Maha Mantra. And it is evoking this relationship between... Notice, by the way, that the Maha Mantra is also flanked by the feminine divine power and the masculine divine power. I'm sorry, the feminine divine power on both ends. Jai. So the mantra begins with Hare and ends with Hare Hare. The feminine power is so important in our tradition, the feminine divine power. And that's why Radha is celebrated even more in Vrindavan. Ananda Vrindavan, appropriately named, lived in Vrindavan for 10 years or so. And right, Radhashtami is so, so powerful, a celebration. So this is the season to celebrate all of this. Any other comments or questions? We're good?